show jim marty reporting from denver colorado where our weather is actually too we have forest fires so um larry how are things up in chicago jim always great to hear from you uh things in chicago were kind of overcast a little rainy the last couple of days no forest fires here of course we don't really have a lot of forests to begin with um, and not to make light of the subject, because I've been watching the news, and it's really kind of scary what's going on out there. Are, are you uh, within reasonable proximity of any of these fires? We were, uh, we are, on Saturday, just uh, very um, close to the fires in the foothills behind Boulder. Uh, the town behind us, closer to the west, got evacuated. Um, we didn't get evacuated. The danger is the ambers float three miles in the air and then they get sucked into your attic and that's how your house catches on fire three miles from the fire. Oh my God, I didn't realize that the, the danger zone was that large. Yeah, we're going to put some screens on our attic vents. Makes sense. Wow. Okay. Okay. Well, we good luck with all of that. We're saying 26 structures just west of Boulder have gone up. Have any, uh, to the best of your knowledge, have any cannabis businesses been affected? grows or anything like that don't know um about that there's some retail very close to where i live and uh they're okay well you know the uh the scary part is i was just reading an article the other day about how they're saying that the entire california 2020 wine crop is ruined uh, even for the uh, uh wineries that didn't burn down because all of the heavy smoke in the air has a chemical reaction to the skin of the grape and it, 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 it affects the taste of the grape. So most of them are saying we can't have a 2020 vintage because uh, the grapes have all been negatively affected. I haven't heard anything similar about marijuana. So I don't, can't really speak to that, but certainly with all the fires that have been happening both in California and Colorado, even for those grows that haven't uh, been directly affected by the flames, I'm wondering if we might not still see some uh, impact as a result of all the smoke. I've heard that about the wine that, um, yeah, the 2020 crop in California is to be almost non-existent, so you might see prices uptick. So stock up on wines. I think you'll see price increases. And, sure. Um, I think there was something in the news about California treating cannabis similar to wine. Actually, that's you're absolutely right. Uh, only in California, they've just come out with a new bill that establishes regional identifications for cannabis products and basic, basically creating appellations, which is, you know, a page right out, of, right out of the wine industry's playbook. But the significance is, is that they said that cannabis was found to be like, just like wine, a quote, product of the place, close, close quote, due to the factors like microclimate, soil, geology, you know, that those are the factors that determine what strains of cannabis will grow well there. So in the wine industry and now in the cannabis industry, 
appellations by, you know, saying grown in Napa Valley or grown in, you know, the triangle or wherever you want to say it's grown, depending on the product. They're used to establish reputations for quality and distinct character characteristics of products from specific regions and to educate consumers about unique qualities um, that are there because of the fact that these strains were grown in particular places. Huh. I, think it's, I think it's very interesting. I think it kind of, you know, I like it because once again, it's normalizing cannabis. If we're going to, you know, give it the same type of factoring that we give to wine, but I don't know about you, Jim, but I see this as a tremendous solution to the branding problem, right? Mm -hmm. You can't get a trademark uh, for marijuana names or products, but if you can put something on your label that says grown in Humboldt County and only you can put that on your label, you know, I, I think that goes a long way in this industry. Very interesting that, um, you know, it must be grown outdoors. Yes. Right. It was, that was, that was interesting because I read that uh, the growers out there were trying to get the, the same protection for indoor grows and the group that's in charge of this said no because if it's grown indoors it's irrelevant where you're growing it interesting so, yep so yeah. it's only available for outdoor grows interesting yeah growing outdoors you can get you know obviously very large volume very large weight but the issue is not what you spray on your cannabis is what your neighbors are spraying on their alfalfa or their corn that right your outdoor grow so, yeah, here in Colorado, some of our outdoor grow clients are tucked in between hills and things like that. That them from uh, contaminants on the prevailing winds. So, yeah, growing outside is a much less controlled environment than growing in, in a greenhouse or a warehouse. But what I really like about it is, you know, for years, at least in my circle of friends, and I'm assuming yours too, and this seems to be a pretty universal sentiment, right? You talk about, oh, stuff that was grown outdoors in Hawaii or stuff that was grown outdoors in the California coast, you know, up near the, the, the triangle and how wonderful it is, you know, and all of a sudden people start showing up and say, yeah, this was grown in California in the triangle. Well, does it have a label on there that says so, right? I mean, and, um, you know, I, I suppose it could become a little snobbish like the whole champagne mm -hmm. or, or sparkling wine um, but nevertheless, you know, if you know that you're getting a blue dream that was grown outdoors in California, that might mean something to you as a consumer. And you should have the benefit of knowing that. Yep. So um, what else we got? It's kind of quiet. Um, we're a week or two ahead of the election. And um, so we'll talk more about the results. Uh, there's five or six states voting on medical or adult use. So we'll right. start around. And to that and I'm next sure. week actually jim i think for our listeners um our, our show next week will be uh, coming out on the monday before election day and so uh, listeners who are interested in hearing about marijuana proposals that are on ballots in case you live in a state that has one we will be going down a list of all of those so if you want to tune into that show um you'll be able to find out uh where these uh, where these votes are taking place yes um for our listeners uh, there's a company that puts out a monthly report, and um, a month or two ago, they did a, a pretty deep dive into all the ballot initiatives uh, that are on the ballot around the country this fall. And uh, the name of that outfit that I work with is Higher Yields. So if you Google Higher Yields, you can find that report. And uh, Larry and I will go through that uh, report a week from today. 
Yep, absolutely. Because uh, if you, in case you're not otherwise motivated to go out and vote, let that be the reason to motivate you to go out and vote. So whatever it takes, but uh, you know, if you can support a good candidate proposal, we want you to do it. Yep. Yeah. This is a very nonpartisan show. We we have one issue that we really care about, and that's the proper um, legal framework and regulatory model for cannabis. Um, other than that, we just encourage people to get out there and vote, exercise your right as an American to express your opinion. Absolutely. As Jerry Garcia, I believe, said, not voting is voting. He's, yeah. And and leave it to Jerry to find a way to describe the ability, you know, doing nothing is doing something. But uh, yeah, look, you know, whatever. I just think it's important because everybody has an opinion. If you stop somebody on the street, they'll certainly give you their opinion. If you have an opinion, go vote. You know, it's one way or the other. So at least we know that whatever the results are, it's the results of what the people in the country really want. And again, if you're looking for reasons to motivate you to go vote, if you're tired of politics, go vote for the cannabis initiatives. You know, find out what's happening in your community on a local level. Find, there's always something to go vote for. Yes. Um, okay. Um, other things to talk about, um, I guess, uh, Missouri? Yeah. So, Missouri. The uh, state of my birth, I grew up in Missouri, still remain a diehard St. Louis Cardinal fan, and was just in St. Louis last week visiting my father. And lo and behold, I my visit coincided with the opening of the first medical cannabis dispensary in Missouri. Uh, it's called N, the letter N, Bliss, B-L-I-S-S. -S. Uh, it's located in St. Louis County, which is rather large. It's it's the entire metropolitan area surrounding St. Louis City. Um, but again, not very far from where my father lives, and I was able to drive by. And, you know, like you would expect at any uh, new opening of a dispensary, especially the very first one in the state, there were long lines, there was news media, there were people protesting it, there were people in favor of it. Um, but this is big news in a place like Missouri, Jim. You have to understand, um, Missouri politically has always been a very, very conservative state. And these types of ideas, while, you know, you and I certainly uh, agree, I think that um, uh, people on both sides of the aisle enjoy this product. And uh, that's not always the factor, but sometimes uh, certain politicians will be uh, um, receptive to their constituents in Missouri. Uh, also has a large population uh, of ev ev evangelicals uh, who are also uh, not big supporters of, of any type of intoxicant, that, uh, whether it's alcohol or um, uh, marijuana, which I learned when I went to the University of Missouri Law School and met a, a number of kids from the state who were uh, – who were that way. And it was very interesting that uh, people would be like that, but it is what it is. Um, but here comes Missouri and they're going to have marijuana that you can go out and buy, at least for now, if you're a patient. And um, it, it's tremendously exciting for me to see. Um, they're predicting huge numbers and and they're, they're going to staff it, if you will. They're gonna, I think they're going to have close to 100, almost 200, 192 dispensaries and 60 cultivators. Uh, Illinois, by contrast, had... 21 or 22 cultivators and 55 or 56 dispensaries and our population, you know, maybe close to double Missouri almost. Um, right. Isn't Missouri about 6 million? Something in that range. Yeah. They're very close in size, I think to Colorado. Right. And sometimes it's referred to as the buckle of the Bible belt. Yes, it is. That's it. absolutely right. The buckle of the Bible belt. If you ever go down to Branson, that's, that's, that's where it all takes place. Um, 
So and another thing for Missouri that bodes well is here we go. The first dispensary is just opening. They already have 65,000 registered patients with an estimated 10,000 more being processed. Whereas in Illinois at our peak, before adult use came along and people were incentivized to join, financially incentivized to join the medical program, we only had about 40 or 45,000 people in the program. So, you know, when Missouri's predicting uh, $250 million of sales next year and over $650 million by 2024, there's no reason to think that they uh, that they won't get there. Oh, and, yeah. I'll, and I'll tell you, Jim, it's uh, very rare to, you know, not so rare, but it's always fun. We get this nice little connection that comes together where our two topics fit right in with each other here and those being cannabis and the Grateful Dead. And when I started law school at the University of Missouri in 1984, I wasn't really sure what to expect down there. I was coming out of Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, which was very liberal at the time. And in fact, it had a uh, they had decriminalized marijuana long before. Uh, so possession of an ounce or less in Ann Arbor was a, a five dollar citation, and people would wear pins saying five dollars is fine with me. It's superimposed over a cannabis leaf and all that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, when you get down to Columbia, Missouri, uh, it's a whole different world down there. Um, I was ultimately able to meet people in Columbia who were able to direct me to the right people to, to be able to uh, take care of my cannabis needs. But in so doing, I began to hear stories of a strain of Missouri weed called Missouri skunkweed. And it was no more descriptive than that. I'm sure nobody could even tell you if it was a, a indica or a sativa or anything like that. But the rumor was that it was a favorite strain of the band members and staff of uh, roadies of the Grateful Dead. So much so uh, that they would go out of their way to schedule shows in Missouri, in Kansas City and St. Louis, uh, to give them an excuse to drive through the state and go through Columbia and and stop and make their purchases. And in fact, uh, from the, I would say, about 1968 through 1972, the Grateful Dead played a huge number of shows in St. Louis and, and you know, some at Washington University, some at uh, the Fox Theater, which only held a couple of thousand people, uh, some at, at, at one at a community college nearby, one at SIU, uh, Edwardsville, just across the river. Common to all of those was it got them into Missouri uh, and presumably within range of this Missouri skunkweed. So maybe this really is a rebirth of the Missouri cannabis movement and we'll find out. Well, we'll see. A lot of things are, you know, happening in Missouri. Um, the fact that they're already having harvests and retail sales in October, uh, when really those licenses were just issued at the end of 2019, the beginning of 2020. Yeah, they've moved quickly. Really and that well, even in the face operators, of all Yeah, some yeah. operators obviously got first to market, so good for them. Yep. Here, I think they'll hit their numbers. Um, it is medical only, but um, Missourians, is that the right term? Yep. Um, Missourians have a lot of um, health issues. There's a lot of diabetes. There's a lot of obesity. They eat a lot of fried food. So even though it's a medical only program, it will still, um, I think, produce very good sales. And I think, isn't Missouri one of the states that's on the ballot for November for adult use? Not yet. Not yet, yeah. but they're, they they will be there soon. I think they're going to have to have a year or two of medical, just to prove to people that you know it's not doesn't spell the end of the world. Um, and by the way, if you're going to talk about fried foods in Missouri, please don't leave out toasted ravioli. <laughs> Very good. All right. Um, 
Well, that's sort of the political landscape, uh, you know, less than two weeks from, uh, as they say on the news, the most important election of our lifetimes. Well, and, and, and along those lines, Jim, and, and, and talking about uh, voting, one other, you know, quick little story that I just want to throw in here before we switch over to music. Um, you have to be uh, at least our age or maybe just a few years younger than us to remember the name Marvin Washington, who was a defensive end with the New York Jets from, I think, 1989 to 1995. Um, he may have been an all-pro one or two years, a very good player for a team that always was a high-publicity team. Uh, and when Marvin retired, uh, somewhere along the way over the last 20 to 25 years, he has turned towards cannabis, as have a number of former NFL and NHL players and Athletes for Care and other actions like that, organizations like that. And in fact, at a number of uh, cannabis conferences that we used to go to, including some of the Cannabis World Congresses, uh, founded and run by our producer, Dan Humiston, uh, it was not uncommon to see uh, groups of former athletes coming in to do presentations on the benefits of cannabis. But Marvin uh, was always very, very outspoken on the issue. And it was hard to miss Marvin. He's the size of a small house. Uh, I'm about six foot one, and I'm used to being one of the taller guys in the room. Um, but boy, I feel like a little kid standing next to him. At any rate, uh, a few years ago, Marvin was the lead plaintiff in a lawsuit that was filed um, trying to get a, a federal court to declare that the government's uh, classification of marijuana as a Schedule One controlled substance is unconstitutional. And uh, over the years, I've heard a number of arguments made about that, both on a legal and a a factual scientific basis why it's a random and arbitrary and, and capricious classification uh, that doesn't merit uh, uh, staying where it is. Uh, the, the, as one would have expected, the district court dismissed the lawsuit, I believe, on a standing issue. Um, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, which should have been an automatic affirmation of the district court, actually gave Marvin a choice and told him uh, that instead of uh, ruling on the appeal, they would give him an opportunity, uh, his group an opportunity to reach out directly to the DEA and ask for voluntary reclassification from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2. Um, Marvin said no to that because a reclassification from 1 to 2 doesn't really do very much for people. Um, it, it, we still have 280, we still have the bank rules, we still have a lot of stuff. And um, I think the goal was, you know, let's just take it off altogether. So when, when his group turned down that offer, the second district went ahead and affirmed the trial court. Uh, the matter was taken up to the Supreme Court. And just the other day, uh, the Supreme Court entered its order denying Marvin and his group's writ of certiorari, which is the legal process by how you ask the Supreme Court to hear your case. Uh, there was no opinion published, so it's unclear uh, exactly why they chose not to take the case. Um, I'm guessing it's because uh, they probably see this as more of a legislative issue and that if, uh, you know, the legislature wants to change the classification, uh, then it should go ahead and do so. Um, but either way, uh, for anybody who knew about the case or has ever heard of Marvin Washington, this was just another attempt, uh, as you and I have been talking about, Jim, to find ways, at least people looking to find ways to legalize marijuana. And of course, as you and I always do say, on the one hand, there's a lot of benefits to that. But on the other hand, if you're in this business and you have a vested financial interest in this business, there is a lot of benefit to uh, considering not being uh, necessarily legal at this time. Well, yes. And as we've discussed, um, we prefer a legislative fix than a Supreme Court decision. We have a very conservative Supreme Court right now with the majority soon to get an additional conservative seat and th their position i believe is that their their job is not to legislate their right. job 
to interpret whether the laws Congress passes their constitution. Right. I agree. That is, that is what they've said. And I'm fine with that. I don't necessarily sure. want an activist Supreme Court circumventing a legislature. But um, very interesting. Um, yes, yeah. the, the legislation we are behind, or I certainly behind, is called the States Act by uh, Cory Gardner. Mm -hmm. was in a very tough fight with uh, former Governor Hickenlooper uh, to keep his Senate seat. And also the other co-sponsor is Elizabeth Warren on the Democratic side who I don't think is up for re-election. I don't year. think she is either. So um, I think that's enough politics. Um, yeah, absolutely. Talk some music. Yes, so, yeah, you know, the, the beauty of this is, is the dead haven't played in ages, but there's always just so much to talk about that, you know, when we sat down today to think about what to do, you come up with three or four topics before we can blink an eye. But what I really want to start with, and, and we've talked, we mentioned this maybe very briefly last week, um, Dave's Picks is about to come out with its next uh, volume. Uh, the last one that came out was great because it was from a show uh, that I had seen in Philadelphia in um, uh, 1984. And now this next one that's coming out is going to be a show from Hartford in 1987. And for me, uh, this is just a time to, to celebrate. I'm a 1980s dead guy. I, that's when I got on the bus. That's when I started watching them, you know, and even though it went into the nineties, I, you know, I still, you know, my, my roots lay in the, in the dead and their sound of the 1980s. And for too long, there have been no releases uh, or very, very few releases from the 1980s. I think in Dick Lavala's, Lavatla's um, 36 volumes for Dick's picks, there was only one show from the 1980s. Um, and now Dave has put out two back to back, but it's just great to see. It's a great sound. Um, you know, Brent uh, at his strongest and, and really going well. Uh, Jerry coming back from his first uh, diabetic coma and, and really picking up where he left off, you know, and uh, Hartford was just a magical place for shows. Unfortunately, I never saw them there. Um, but I, I know from, uh, from accounts of others and from having reviewed set lists and listening to bootlegs um, that that was always a favorite place for the, for the dead to play. Um and so it, it, it's great that they've released this. I'm looking forward to getting it sometime in the next week or so. And, you know, can only hope that this signals a, um, uh, a real direction to focus on uh, shows throughout the 1980s for a while. Yes, me too. Uh, as I think I mentioned, my first show was 79, uh, but I saw many shows in Colorado in the 1980s. Um, most night runs at, uh, Red Rocks, Telluride 87, uh, McNichols shows several years later on between uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, so, yes, we had lots of great Grateful Dead shows uh, in the 80s in Colorado. Where I'm, again, that was my run, too, uh, up into the 1990s in Las Vegas at the Silver Bowl. In fact, as I have told on previous shows, my last Grateful Dead was May of 1995 at the Silver Bowl in Las Vegas. So um, I think um, we had a little bit of uh, to have about FOD, Friend of the Devil. Well, that was something else that I wanted to, to, to throw out there. And, you know, I guess this just goes in the category of do your homework, but go to the shows for years. Jerry Garcia plays Friend of the Devil. The dead sing it. I sing right along with it. 
It's my song. I love it. It's one of my all-time favorites. I can sing it in my sleep. I have friends who used to sing it to their children, but instead of saying friend of the devil, they'd say friend of the doggy so the kids wouldn't get scared, you know, and all sorts of little fun things like that. But what I started noticing was sometime in the last 10 years, um, when the song would be played by Phil and friends or by Bobby or, or, or dead and company, um, or by other people, uh, um, there was a, a, a verse that got added on at the end that I had never heard before. And just really quickly, it goes, you can borrow from the devil. You can borrow from a friend. The devil will give you 20 when your friend got only 10. And it's, it's, it's the last verse of the song. And I, couldn't figure out for the life of me where that verse came from, who had invented it, why it was part of the song, why they were singing it. Jerry had never sung it. So I just assumed that meant it was what it was. And I was listening to the uh, Grateful Dead Hour, or the Grateful Dead show on Sirius XM on the Grateful Dead station uh, last Sunday. And um, somebody called in and happened to ask that question. And they gave an answer that really knocked me over, which is, that's a lyric that's original Robert Hunter lyric was part of the song originally. And sure enough, when I went and I pulled out, you know, Robert Hunter's box of rain or whatever, his, his lyrics book, there it was right there, right along with all the other verses. I had never even occurred to me to just go pick up the book and look and see if it was there. I was so certain that it couldn't have been a part of the tune. And so I started digging deeper and, uh, apparently, um, Robert Hunter says that when he wrote the song, he wrote it in stages. And by the time he got to this last verse, Jerry had already recorded a version of the song without it. And apparently Jerry was just not willing to change his mind or his musical interpretation of the song to include that verse. So he never sang it. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know so much that it was a protest as much as just he felt it would upset the balance of the song the way that he had it in mind when he wrote the music. And so it was just all eliminated. And now here it is being brought back, you know, and, and certainly part of, of, of Hunter's work and, and very much deserving to be out there in the open. Um, and, you know, and for me, it's, a, it's just an important lesson, you know, that you can love Jerry, but you just better be careful. You know, if, if you buy in with him all the way, there might be some hidden secret that you just don't know about. So, you know, mm -hmm. kudos to Robert Hunter and, and to the rest of the band for finally giving him his due for that last verse. Well, a couple of comments on that is... Now, is FOD, that's what us deadheads call it, friend of the devil, FOD, um, is that off of Working Man's or American Beauty? American Beauty. Okay. So at the time, the band was under a lot of pressure from Warner Brothers to keep their songs to three minutes so they could have F radio play, an right. AM radio play back in the right. 70s. So yep. that might have been one of the reasons to leave off that last verse. My other comment is, though, you can hear Robert Hunter Pretty much when he played Friend of the Devil, he would include that last verse. And there's a lot of live recordings of Robert Hunter singing Friend of the Devil that include that last verse. Well, I, I have to confess that, that somehow that was something that had always escaped my attention. I've heard Robert Hunter sing many times, and maybe I had just never focused on it. But, uh, you know, I'm satisfied. I've now come to the end of my quest. I understand what it is, and I'm all for it. All right. Now, um, coming to the end of our time slot here... I guess we can end on maybe a bit of a sad note. You had a friend who had a heart attack. You want to tell that story? Yeah, this is uh, it, it's both a sad story, but with a uh, with a dead uh, favorable dead twist for an ending. I have a, a very dear cousin, uh, first cousin, uh, who is an attorney here in Chicago. 
Uh, love her dearly. She's a few years younger than I am, so I didn't spend as much time with her uh, back in the growing up days. Um, and and now she's gone and far exceeded me in, in the legal circles. And so, you know, I'm the one looking up to her. Um, and she married a, a wonderful, wonderful man who was an attorney in her law firm with her. And um, they're both in their early 50s and they're both, uh, you know, triathletes for for their honeymoon uh, when they got married, it was a second marriage for both of them. So only a few years ago, they they went to run a triathlete, which I couldn't understand, but they were happy as can be. Um, and he was a big deadhead, uh, the husband. And the husband had a, a good friend from his college days or wherever who somehow has a connection to Phil Lesh. And Phil Lesh had even come to Chicago to play a birthday party show in this guy's backyard a year before that my cousin and her husband had attended but couldn't tell me about because it was a big secret so they wouldn't draw huge crowds that weren't invited um, but after, uh, my cousin's husband passed away, the friend reached out to Phil Lesh, um, and, you know, said, look, this guy passed away. It was very tragic. Uh, he was a big fan of yours and, um, and the band and, um, you know, if you can help out one way or another, it would really mean a lot. And Phil, to his credit, sat down with his group and they put together about a 45, well, it was just about exactly 45 minutes set of music. Uh, that they prepared uh, from, you know, remote locations and, you know, brought all together in one of these, you know, big puzzle piece uh, Google screens. Um, and the, a, uh, a memorial service, uh, online memorial service was planned for my, my cousin's husband. And we all logged on. And uh, within a minute or two after they made their introductions, they started this video. There was Phil Lesh giving a shout out to Feisty, which was his nickname. And the next thing you knew, they were they were, they were playing uh, Eyes of the World and to Help on the Way, Slipknot into the Wheel and back into Slipknot uh, when unfortunately the time ran out before they could jump into, uh, into what everyone had anticipated would be a great Franklin's. But it was just a wonderful, wonderful feel-good moment, uh, not the least of which because, you know, Phil Lesh is a busy guy. He and his group don't have to take time out to do this kind of thing. Uh, but clearly they did. Um, for me, that's just, you know, another check mark in the plus column for Phil Lesh, who's already, uh, you know, one of my all-time favorites. Sure. Um, and I can yeah, tell I'm you, a big, big Phil fan. Him. Really enjoys seeing him post uh, Grateful Dead at Red Rocks, etc. Who was in the band with him, do you know? No, I, I, I'm, I'm assuming that it was what they refer to as the uh, uh, family band. Uh, the Terrapin family band, right? Exactly. That plays up at his Terrapin uh, Crossroads location, which I, I believe includes two of his sons. Uh, there was a female vocalist who I, sorry, I don't know her name because uh, she had a wonderful voice and she was really, really good. Uh, the drummer was great. He was sitting in his apartment drumming on whatever objects were in front of him. He didn't have a kit. He had his desk and a stapler and something else. And he was just, you know, playing off of that. Um, and it was great. You know, I, I think one or two of them were actually standing on the deck of the, of the Terrapin Crossroads, uh, place out in Marin County. Um, but it was just, it was a wonderful thing to see. And it made everybody feel good for a little while, uh, in relation to this guy. And for my cousin, it was just, it was a wonderful shot in the arm for her. And, um, you know, you hear all sorts of stories about rock and roll performers and some are more temperamental than others. But, you know, you always like to think that the guys in the dead would be, you know, a cut above the rest and would have that little special spark in them. And, you know, this this is certainly a plus for me in terms of, you know, my overall feelings of Phil Lesh. So it was a, it was a great thing to see. Yes. <clears throat> Very good. Yes, I've been to Terrapin Crossroads. It's 
It's on a little sandy spit into the uh, bay and it's surrounded on three sides by water. It's a very beautiful place. We're coming to the end of our time slot, but we can probably squeeze in one more story about uh, Trey Anastasio recently playing. And I guess he's doing it most Friday nights for the next few weeks uh, at the Beacon in uh, north, uh, the north side of Manhattan. Yep, he's doing a residency up there at the Beacon Theater, which is just a talk about, you know, there's certain rock and roll venues in the world that just, you know, all you have to do is just say their name and people know what you're talking about. And the Beacon is definitely one of them. And even though it was already a famous venue, um, there's no doubt that the string of residencies that the Allman Brothers did there every uh, March for probably about 10 years running uh, just elevated it to the next level. Um, and, you know, Trey, yeah, he's, he's playing there every Friday night for uh, seven or eight weeks in a row with his little residency. Uh, it's all being broadcast so people can hear it. He sounds great. He's got great energy. Uh, he plays a whole wide variety of stuff. Um, and you, you heard something interesting about that show, Jim. What did you hear about? Uh, well, one, I've heard some of it on uh, Fish Radio, on XM, Sirius. And um, it's been, sounds great. A lot of new songs. The old songs sound really good. Doing some very interesting acapella and uh, trade a microphone with no guitar. So it's very interesting things coming out of that. Mm-hmm. Trey, to help the people who work at the Beacon, um, is paying them basically to listen to his show. So all the people who would normally be working bars, selling beers, cleaning up the venue at the end of the night, um, are being invited to get paid to come to listen to him play. And then I guess on the economics of it, they make it up with the uh, live broadcasts on uh, XM or where he's uh, posting his live music too. I guess that's how he makes up for the economics of paying all these people to come to the show. And he gets an audience. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yes. Probably some social distancing. Yeah, it's, okay. it's a beautiful old theater. I, I went to a new year's show a number of years ago with my son uh, for a government mule show. We actually went to Manhattan without tickets and we couldn't get tickets to MSG from fish, but we did get tickets at the beacon for a government mule. Nice. I've been to that. It's a beautiful old theater. Yep. And, um, another Beacon show is David Byrne has a new documentary that's just fabulous music. Oh, you know what? I'm so glad you mentioned that, and we really should have talked about that. Let's let's put that on the burner for next week because we, that's something that has to be addressed. Yeah, that's a very interesting. I believe Spike Lee directed it. He did. It was that. It, yes. Thank you for mentioning that. It was just on HBO the other night, and I think it's going to be shown on HBO you know, over the course of the next month or so. Um, I, I can't even remember the name of it uh, as I'm sitting here, but uh, if anybody was a David Byrne fan or a Talking Heads fan, or even if you don't know who David Byrne is, you need to watch this. It's it's just tremendous. And, and we will definitely talk about this next week. Looking forward to it. He's really a national treasure. His voice sounds just the same as when he was in Talking Heads. Isn't it amazing? We looked up his age. He is 68 years old. Yep, and he was up there moving around and having a good old time. It, it's a fantastic. All right, everybody. I'm going to say over and out from the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Larry, say goodbye. Goodbye, everyone. Thanks for listening as always. Stay safe, stay healthy, and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Over and out.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked the Podcast. If you're curious to explore the highly responsible side of cannabis, farming, and legalization, I'm here to help lighten the stigma and build your can of confidence. Download episodes now of Casually Baked the Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And journey with me through the evolving cannabis culture and discover how and why people like you are adding cannabis to their wellness toolkit. It's time to get casually baked.